Sorry. Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. I think this passage will be familiar to a lot of you. Um, so here are the words of Paul. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed. But it is the power of God for those who are being saved. It is written in Scripture, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will reject the intelligence of the intelligent. Where are the wise? Where are the legal experts? Where are today's debaters? Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish? In God's wisdom, He determined that the world wouldn't come to know Him through its wisdom. Instead, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Jews ask for signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I can tell you that in my experience, this verse gets weaponized uh, more in my experience than many others. Uh, this verse gets weaponized in ways that say like, um, I don't know, like why would I need to learn about science? Or why should I listen to philosophy or something? All of that is man's wisdom, right? Uh, we don't need any of that. Uh, we just need like God's wisdom. I remember coming home from college during one break and visiting my mom and her friend was over and I was talking about stuff I was learning in my philosophy class. And uh, Virginia, my mom's friend, sort of waited patiently for me to finish and then she said, all you need to know, Joe, is Christ and Him crucified, which is from the passage we just read. The rest of it is, right, sort of like nonsense. It's the wisdom of man. And I remember feeling like, man, this is a conversation stopper. This doesn't ask or invite a person into further dialogue. This doesn't further discussion. This is the period at the end. Like, no, there's nothing more to say. Christ and Him crucified, Joe. I don't need to hear about Plato, right? I don't need to hear about Nietzsche or whatever, as though there's nothing that we might glean, right, from these individuals or from any discipline whatsoever. This is all we need because human wisdom is unreliable. We just need Christ and Him crucified. I have this interaction with students as a philosophy professor. You can imagine, right? I teach a lot about logic, reasoning, and argumentation. Right? I tell students all the time, if you, if you have good arguments that are grounded in solid evidence and you use good reasoning, you're more likely to get closer to the truth than if you commit obvious fallacies or if you don't take good data into account. Right? But if there's an argument where the conclusion is something they don't like, then what I get is this passage, this verse, right? And it sort of just ends it. Like there's nothing I could say. There's no evidence I could give. There's no reason I could provide because 
you know, Christian beliefs are foolish to the world. So, of course, they're going to appear irrational. But you can see how that can justify almost any belief. And it doesn't lead to any further discussion. It stops discussion. And so, I want to th think about this passage in maybe ways we can learn from its wisdom and maybe ways we can avoid falling into error. And I, want, I don't want what I'm about to say to be a conversation stopper, just the opposite. I want what I'm about to say to be a conversation starter that maybe causes you to think and you might not agree with me and, well, what about this or what about that? And that's a beautiful thing. The best sermon leaves you with more questions, more thoughts, more introspection, right? So I want to look at a piece of this passage again, uh, and I want, to, I want to talk about it a little bit. So I'm going to read just a, just a section from what I just read. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Jews ask for signs, like miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we, the early church, right, these new Christians, preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and Christ is God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So Paul seems to be talking about the foolishness of God in terms of the cross, in terms of the cross and the resurrection. That this is what looks like foolishness. And to me, this makes some sense, right? So from my perspective, the logic of the cross is foolishness according to the logic of the world. Um, go, be broken, be humiliated, suffer deeply for the sake of love and forgiveness and redemption. Even though, Jesus, you could call down a legion of angels and save yourself and establish an earthly kingdom that is just and loving, don't do any of that. Instead, be broken on the cross. That looks foolish. In a world that says the goal is to, in fact, have enough power to be safe, to be able to control, to be able to feel comfortable, to have a, an element of convenience to my life and predictability. The goal is to like have a great 401k, retire early, feel confident in that. To say, no, 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 that's not the logic you should operate according. You should operate according to the logic that says, become a living sacrifice, Joe. Offer all that you have to God. Risk for the sake of love, right? Put yourself in harm's way for the sake of your neighbor or the least of these. That, that doesn't look so smart. That doesn't look very wise. But this is the call of Christ for us to pick up our cross, to do likewise, to die to self. This is the call. And when I've lived it, when I've actually taken steps in this direction, the truth of it becomes crystal clear. Not, not because it makes sense rationally, but because when it's lived, it's so incredibly transformative. 
right? Because when it's lived in the world, man, boom, moments of resurrection start happening. The Spirit starts working. The logic of the cross looks like foolishness in the eyes of the world. The foolishness of God is stronger than, or is, is, is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than men's strength. And I want to think about this for just a minute. Because Jesus, it seems, looks weak from a particular vantage point. If John Wayne is uh, our image of the American hero, or if it's Rambo, uh, or maybe it's, right, I don't know, Bill Gates or Donald Trump, I don't know, right? Strength, power, money. They, you, you defeat your enemies because you're such a good shot uh, with your rifle, right? Um, you, you, you vanquish your foes because of your uh, intellect, because you're, you're smarter or stronger. Uh, you're willing to risk more than others. That's how strength is shown in the world. And God's strength is shown on the cross. That doesn't make any sense. That's not the kind of strength that our cultural heroes exemplify. It's like the reverse. But I wonder, what actually shows more strength? Jesus has the ability to defend himself. Jesus has the ability to avoid going to the cross and to vanquish his enemies. But he doesn't. He chooses love. He chooses sacrifice. He chooses forgiveness. He chooses self-control. But in a weird way, doesn't that take more strength? That kind of self-control? The kind that stays silent in front of Pontius Pilate rather than defending himself? I mean, what kind of internal strength would that take? What kind of self-control would it be to not get out of the cross, but to willingly go there for the sake of love? That's a kind of strength I, I can't comprehend. That's like a divine strength that only makes sense in the light of the cross and resurrection. Said differently, I would argue God is so powerful, so vast, so transcendent, so worthy of worship, that God's very presence, that God's love, determines the fundamental shape of reality and history and the future. God's love will determine the shape of reality, both past, present, and future. Which means we get to be living sacrifices knowing that it's God's presence and God's love that determines our future. Not earthly power, not money, not the military, not land, not my comfort, not my ego, but God that determines reality. And this will look like foolishness to the world. Here's the question I think we need to ask when looking at this passage. I'm going, to, I'm going to act foolish in the eyes of the world for what end? Why am I, why am I acting this way? What is my motivation in this? 
Often this passage of scripture is used as a conversation stopper to win some culture war, right? Like why I don't have to wear a mask. Well, I'll tell you, you can listen to your science, but the foolishness of God is wiser than science, right? I don't think that's a good reason for trying to weaponize this passage to win a culture war. Or it can be used to mean I don't really have to know that much. I don't really have to learn or grow. Like I don't have to read the books or get educated or listen to other points of view because all I need to know is Christ and Him crucified. That's it. That might sound foolish to you, but God's wisdom often does. And that means I don't have to actually do the hard work of growing, of listening, of learning. That doesn't, that's not a very good motivation to like utilize this passage, right? We can use it to validate our own political team or our own biases. We justify them. And we stop the conversation with this passage. But none of that seems to me the motive that Paul is communicating here. We're called to look foolish in the eyes of the world, not for culture war, not to keep us stuck, not to win some argument, but for the sake of love. I'm called to look foolish in the eyes of the world because of the way I love. We, as a church, are called to look foolish in the eyes of the world because of the way we love, because of the way we risk for the sake of love. So I want to think about some examples. So I want to tell you this church does it. People in our community are doing this. What does this look like? Well, this church and the church council allowed Henry Hunter who had just been released from prison, who was trying desperately to stay clean, to live at this church for 18 months. Do you know how much trouble the church can get in if there's an incident at the church, if something happens? It's not like it's without risk. That doesn't make a lot of sense in the eyes of the world. But our motive was love. And do you want to know what happened? Resurrection happened, at least in the life of Henry. You did that. This church did that. That's what I want to look foolish for. Not to win an argument, but for love. Do you want to know what Jody Peterson, the leader of Interfaith, has done? She's already sold her building. The building downtown. She hasn't got permission to utilize the Salvation Army to house homeless. She's already sold. I'll be honest, this pushes my limits because I think to myself, whoa, that... That does not seem super wise. Like maybe you should wait to find out what the city says, right? Maybe we should like dot our I's and cross our T's and this is my personality. But I'll be honest, when I talk to Jody, her passion, her faith, her, her call from God is so clear in her mind that she's willing to take this leap. Not to get rich, not to get famous, not to make money, so that she can get a hundred more beds to help the homeless. She's risking, she's looking foolish for the sake of love. That I can get behind. That I can support. I just read something that was disconcerting to me just this morning. Pew Research is doing a poll trying to figure out how many people in the United States 
plan to get vaccinated, are already vaccinated, or are suspicious, or they might say, I will never get vaccinated. So you have like five options, already vaccinated, will get vaccinated, might, have doubts, will never. And they just want to get a sense, right? And then they ask questions about what are the things that you'll consider about vaccinating yourself? Like what are the major reasons you would do it or you wouldn't do it? So the thing that struck me as I'm looking through the, re the results of this, because again, this is not about beating up people who won't get vaccinated. That's, that's not my point in this at all. It's complicated for lots of people about whether you want to get vaccinated or not. I completely understand that. But 48% of white evangelical Christians who were part of this research said that um, community health played little role in how they responded. That community health outcomes were not important in their decision-making process. And this jumped off the page to me that as Christians, one of our first thoughts should be, how do my decisions, how will my decisions, how will our decisions affect the neighborhood, the community, others, the least of these? That this should be of primary concern, not my own individual rights, not my own individual freedoms, but in fact, the people that will be impacted by my decisions, that I put others and their concerns ahead of myself. And that might not always look wise, that might actually look foolish to the world, but it seems like it's foolish for the sake of love. So I want us to look foolish. I hope people scratch their heads at the stuff that Collister does. Why would they do that? How does that help their church? What are they doing over there? So long as when they dig a little deeper, when they get curious and scratch the surface, they see that we're doing it because of the logic of the cross. We're doing it to be living sacrifices, broken and poured out for the world, for the redemption and the resurrection, the transformation of our community. So I hope you join me. Let's get like our crazy like clown hats on. Woo! And we're gonna be, we're gonna be foolish. We're gonna look like court jesters for love. Amen? Amen? If you have your elements, we're going to transition to the table. And this is right in line with what Paul's talking about, right? I mean, we come to the table to celebrate what Christ did, to remember Christ's suffering, His faithfulness. But we also have to remember that communion always points us forward to the kingdom of God, where we feast at God's heavenly banquet and every tear has been wiped from our eye, when resurrection has been established in full, and that hope, that future kingdom, that hope, allows us to look like fools for love today. Let's do it a little bit differently today. Let's, let's don't, don't consume your elements till the very end. So just hold on to them till we're done with the liturgy, and then we'll all take them together. When Jesus ascended, he promised to be with us always in the power of your word and Holy Spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, 
gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by His blood. By your Spirit make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at His heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. If you would take your piece of bread... Hold it up. This is the body of Christ broken for you. If you have your cup, you can take it now. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. If you would please join in our closing song.